You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Welcome back, Prashant. It's been a few weeks. Yep. Thanks for having me. Well, as, as always, a pleasure. Uh, do you want to tell us about your uh, recent travels a bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I was in a couple of Southeast Asian countries, primarily in uh, Indonesia and Brunei. Um, lots of interesting conversations because it overlapped with um, the ASEAN meetings that were going on. Um, some of them were on the this notion of the Indo-Pacific. Um, others were related to the South China Sea, which I guess we're going to be talking about today, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, so before we get into the South China Sea, actually, uh, the Indo-Pacific thing is interesting. So has ASEAN kind of figured out um, what it thinks about the Indo-Pacific? Because I know the Indonesians have their own understanding of the Indo-Pacific and sort of the, you know, the maritime fulcrum thinking. But uh, has ASEAN as a whole sort of really grappled with this concept? Yeah, I mean, it it, it, it continues to be one of these interesting curiosities um, because ASEAN's position kind of remains very ambivalent with respect to the Indo-Pacific. So the ASEAN documents that came out um, all made references to the fact that, you know, we take note of the various visions for the Indo-Pacific, which essentially is a kind of reference to the fact that, you know, the United States is not the only country that's promoting this Indo-Pacific vision. The, the Indonesians, as you noted, are doing it. Uh, the Japanese have their own visions. And it's kind of ASEAN's way of hedging to say, well, listen, we're taking a close look at this, but we're still not quite sure how this contributes to um, this notion of an open, inclusive order. Right. And then also kind of, you know, how does this uh, sort of cater to Southeast Asian countries' goals of promoting um, economic development and prosperity. I mean, we heard some of that from uh, Pompeo uh, when he was out in the region, but we really haven't seen a lot of meat on the bones. And so I think Southeast Asian countries are kind of reverse, re reserving judgment about how they proceed. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, like we talked about this a bit in the context of our podcast about the Shangri-La dialogue, but it was interesting to sort of hear um, India, Japan um, and uh, other countries, including Australia, sort of emphasize uh, ASEAN centrality. And even uh, Jim Mattis in the United States took note of the ASEAN centrality concerns and sort of making it clear that the Indo-Pacific concept doesn't seek to undermine ASEAN centrality necessarily. But I agree that, I mean, this is all still kind of uh, fuzzy even after Pompeo's trip. Um, but the thing I really want to talk to you about today is uh, is the South China Sea, which is a perennial favorite on the podcast. The first ever episode of this podcast was actually about the South China Sea, and here we are more than four years later still talking about it. Uh, but four years is actually pretty uh, pretty good in terms of how long, uh, theoretically, you know, uh, talks have been going on the code of conduct uh, for, I guess, more than 15 years now after the 2002 declaration uh, on the conduct of parties in the South China Sea. Uh, so last year, uh, after the 31st uh, summit meeting uh, in Manila, uh, when uh, the Philippines was hosting it, uh, ASEAN and China finally um, formally kicked off the uh, start of sort of detailed negotiations on the actual text that would be um, part of the code of conduct between uh, ASEAN and China on the South China Sea. And um, now, on uh, August 3rd, the foreign ministers of the 10 ASEAN states um, and Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi announced that they reached an agreement on a uh, single text, a single draft uh, code of conduct negotiating text. Um, and this was a secret document uh, that uh, technically, you know, none of the, uh, the public hasn't really seen it. Um, but luckily, the diplomat does have an extensive network of expertise, including uh, Carl Thayer, who managed to get his hand on a uh, leaked copy. And he uh, wrote a really long piece for us about the uh, specific proposals, uh, uh, sort of the inside baseball that led to this text coming out. And um, Prashant, it really seems like, you know, the nagging issues that sort of the 
uh, some of the forward-leading, um, a forward-leading ASEAN claimant states, and uh, certainly uh, the United States and um, Japan, and sort of supporters of a rules-based regime, had sought to really clarify. There doesn't really seem to be a lot of progress on these issues. Like we don't have a clear sign of a binding uh, dispute settlement mechanism. The geographic scope remains fuzzy. Um, and it's not clear that there's really any detail on the issues of like fisheries management. Um, and uh, both China and uh, Singapore's uh, foreign minister uh, described this accomplishment as a breakthrough. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I sort of want to interrogate that a bit. So what's your take on all this? You know, you were in the region while all this was playing out. And, uh, you know, more broadly, if you do want to zoom out a bit and just talk about the code of conduct process a bit for our readers, uh, for our listeners, that would be uh, great, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you nailed it in terms of, you know, where we're at, um, which is we, we have uh, a declared uh, sort of, quote unquote, breakthrough um, on these negotiations. Um, but we don't really have a sense of the specifics as to whether that claim uh, can be validated, right? The Chinese have always historically maintained that they have some kind of two-track two approach to the South China Sea, where they will kind of negotiate with Southeast Asian states collectively on some aspects of this, but then they'll also have bilateral negotiations with individual countries on aspects that involve their claims. Um, and essentially what has happened over the past few years is that the Chinese have made significant ground or, or I guess progress on the water really in terms of their militarization of the South China Sea. Um, even as they produce some inroads um, on the on the code of conduct. And so essentially the question that in the region that's being asked is, I mean, what is really going to be the value of any code of conduct, even if it comes into fruition, right? Mm -hmm. um, essentially the Chinese would have de facto control of the South China Sea by the time anything substantial or significant comes out. The other interesting thing that's that's important to note is that, um, you know, as, as you noted in the background to all of this, ASEAN and China, I mean, this is really a, a procedure that goes back to the end of the Cold War, really, um, when ASEAN and China started negotiations on the declaration of the code of conduct. Um, and that took a long time to actually be implemented. And then China, through its recent actions, have, has moved to violate uh, the spirit and the letter of the DOC. So then the other question would be, even if we had a COC tomorrow, would that matter in terms of whether the Chinese would actually follow through on it? Mm -hmm. um, and I suspect the answer, given the, the previous track record, um, would be no. Um, and so those are kind of the questions uh, that are being asked. Um, I think, you know, uh, Carl Thayer and his piece um, and other observers, you yourself wrote in our in our newsletter, uh, the recent edition that we, we publish, that we really need to keep uh, our attention to the details to see, you know, what the Chinese and the Southeast Asian states are, are working towards, right? Uh, agreements on notions like notification of exercises and things like that could be quite significant. Um, and we really need to pay attention to some of the wording. Now, that being said, you know, we are at a position where we're still, it's a single negotiated text, but it hasn't been finalized yet. It's only going to be finalized later this year. Um, so we don't know what's actually going to happen with respect to the text. But the things that we are hearing about are, are quite disturbing. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, and I believe the term that the Singaporeans are using is uh, that it's a living document right now. Uh, so mm -hmm. it will be uh, shaped. Um, you know, I should have actually contextualized things a little better. I mean, you got at this uh, with China's sort of dual track approach to the South China Sea, if I can call it that, really. I mean, the uh, the idea that China's, you know, really and clearly pushed ahead with militarization, right? Militarization that... 
Uh, Jim Mattis uh, pointed out point blank at the Shangri-La dialogue that the United States used as a pretext to disinvite China from the Rim of the Pacific um, multilateral naval drills uh, off the coast of Hawaii this year, and uh, effectively in perpetuity, if you look at the National Defense Authorization Act for 2019, includes a um, includes a provision that the Secretary of Defense has to uh, certify that China has uh, demilitarized the South China Sea before China mm-hmm. can ever come back to RIMPAC. Um, but yeah, so all of that activity has happened um, while China has um, pursued uh, a rapprochement with ASEAN. And like, and really, this is something we've discussed uh, last year uh, in the context of the Philippines chairmanship of ASEAN, uh, which, um, as we know, um, after Rodrigo Duterte came into power in the Philippines, just... Um, inaugurating um in, uh, you know entering office just uh just under two weeks before the 2016 uh, arbitral tribunals award uh which uh, f- really uh, you know invalidated china's nine dash line claim among other things um but then duterte effectively turned the philippines around 180 and started a close rapprochement with china so that really worked out well and this uh dual track approach i think has um has served china quite well um, so one of the interesting things, you know, uh, going back to Carl Thayer's piece, uh, I guess we're kind of discussing Carl Thayer's piece on this podcast now a bit. Um, but it's interesting to sort of see the uh, the groupings within ASEAN in terms of which countries made which proposals. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, there seems to be a lot of, uh, and I don't know, maybe this is my sort of inexperience in really paying attention to detailed kind of ASEAN positioning on on these issues behind closed doors and maybe you know better than I do. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that, you know, for example, like Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore, um, uh, sorry, the Philippines, Indonesia and Singapore, and then China and Cambodia each proposed sort of, um, you know, separate options on the uh, the idea of cooperation within the code of conduct, uh, including kind of issues like maritime environmental protection. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, if this kind of fracturing within ASEAN is um, is surprising at all, because, you know, um, we've always talked about the forward leading claimants, uh, which come and go. I mean, uh, the Philippines once was the most forward leading claimant in the South China Sea, and now it's clearly no longer that. Um, but um, I'm wondering if you had any sort of uh, observations about about you know what we saw in uh, in Thayer's report about the uh, inside baseball here. Yeah, I mean, I I think the the key notion here, um, and you mentioned it too, is the relative comparison to where we were at, um, you know, maybe five years ago relative to today, and the big significant shift within the intra ASEAN dynamics is the fact that the Philippines has gone from being the most forward-leaning claimant in the South China Sea, and I guess you could you could call it a draw between the Philippines and Vietnam, um, to now the laggard um, on the South China Sea disputes, despite being uh, the main uh, claimant. And so it's very difficult for other Southeast Asian states to then say, well, you know, even if uh, the Philippines that used to be this major forward-leaning claimant is going to step back from its position, you know, the Singaporeans somehow should have more of an interest um, in the South China Sea disputes. And the Chinese are very clever at, you know, pointing to the fact that, you know, Singapore, why are you getting in the way of this if the Philippines is not calling for it? That's one dynamic. And I think we've seen that with respect to other countries in Southeast Asia that are non-claimants. But then even within the claimants, that's changed the dynamic too. If the Philippines steps back, Vietnam, which is the other forward-leaning claimant in the South China Sea, has had to weaken its position a little bit. Right. So my prognosis of where this agreement is really heading, um, just based on what Carl Thayer has reported, the the general cadence of the negotiations between China and ASEAN over the past year, uh, is that we're sort of going to get a lowest common denominator agreement uh, coming out of this that really uh, favors Chinese interests. Uh, I don't don't see, you know, the kind of things that... um, 
you know, Western scholars and South China Sea watchers talk about a track two settings, uh, you know, the, the precise geographic scope uh, sort of um, being expansive enough and uh, the dispute settlement mechanisms being binding, all that stuff. I mean, it really doesn't seem like we're on a trajectory where that will make it into the final agreement. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you uh, agree with that. No, I, I think so. Um, and I think, you know, we, we should, like I said, pay attention to the details and the specifics in, 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 in terms of this code of conduct that as it's ongoing. Um, but I think, you know, speaking to this idea of, you know, what the Chinese are doing, I think we should, you know, not be have any illusions of the fact that um, they're doing this in, in part to say, well, we're doing this militarization, but um, you know, in an attempt to counter this notion that we're not engaging in confidence-building measures, okay, well, we're going to make some progress on the COC. But at the same time, you saw a few days later after this was done, the Chinese foreign ministry coming out and saying, hey, listen, you know, the, some outside parties are trying to push for a timeline. They're trying to push for specifics. But this is a really complex set of negotiations. It's going to take a really long time. But then, you know, at the same time, China's moving really quickly with militarization. <laughs> That's right. Um, and so we we should pay attention to the specifics, but I think you're right to point out the fact that, um, you know, we're paying attention to this agreement, but there's, you know, the military realities on the ground that contrast significantly with the diplomatic realities, and the pace of those two are kind of divergent, right? And so we should definitely pay attention to those. That's right. Um so, you know, about the role of these, uh, quote unquote, outside parties, uh, you know, the external powers, these sort of, mm-hmm. um, I guess, especially the Quad, but uh, obviously the United States. Um, it, it seems to me that, you know, the Trump administration is clearly thinking about um, about Asia a little bit more seriously. Right. I mean, I think Pompeo's trip signaled that even if it got a bit of criticism for the numbers that the United States sort of announced uh, um, while while in Asia. Um but broadly, it seems like uh, when it comes to the process of supporting rules-based mechanisms and institutions, uh, U.S.-ASEAN cooperation just isn't what it used to be. Um, and it really seems like ASEAN, uh, you know, China has successfully kind of decoupled ASEAN from the United States. Uh, and it's not really a decoupling because obviously there isn't really any kind of obligation for ASEAN in the United States to walk in lockstep on this issue. And there never really has been. Um, but that's kind of my um, my growing sense. Uh, and, you know, we do have the East Asia Summit later this year to look forward to and the summit tree. Um, I actually hear that, you know, Trump has this military parade planned, and I think it's actually during the plenary of the East Asia Summit, so he might be leaving early again. I don't know if you heard mm-hmm. that, but mm-hmm. but uh, but yeah, so who knows? Maybe, maybe Trump misses the plenary session again uh, for the second mm-hmm. year in a row. Um, but what's your sense here of the, of the United States' uh, role uh, in sort of fostering a... Uh, a more kind of rules-based outcome out of this COC process. No, I, I think you're right that that some of the the kind of shine has come off of U.S.-ASEAN relations. I think there was a perception that under the Obama administration, Obama personally got it. You know, the fact that he needed to show up and emphasize that ASEAN was important, and a lot of the statements and the fact sheets, you know, started from the notion that, listen, ASEAN and Southeast Asia is important for its its own sake. And then we bring in the U.S. role and all these geopolitical interests. But under the Trump administration, there's a greater recognition now that, you know, there, a lot of the operational work of U.S.-ASEAN relations is still going on at the bureaucratic level. But in terms of the president and the White House, there is a notion that, you know, ASEAN isn't really at the top of the list. I mean, you get all these statements about ASEAN being central to the Indo-Pacific. But, you know, things like attending meetings, uh, staying on, uh, rhetorical statements, um, and the fact that, you know, a lot of the things that Trump says, you know, contravene a lot of the sense of the rules-based order the United States is trying to build. 
um, you know, really, they do matter in Southeast Asia. You know, when I was uh, in the region this time, I heard a lot of uh, complaints uh, on that front and that the rhetoric uh, wasn't very helpful. And so that there is that sense. Um, I also think there is this notion, you know, we're talking about the South China Sea. Um, and when I had conversations in the region, there still was were still questions and anxieties about, hey, listen, do you really think the United States cares that much about the South China Sea? You know, within Asia policy, we see a lot of focus on North Korea. We see we're still worried about the Trump administration potentially getting into distractions in the Middle East. Um, and then also within even in the approach on China, we see the Trump administration caring more about things like economics or Taiwan relative to the South China Sea. That's right. Some of this is some of this is kind of anxieties that you hear in the region typically. Um, but I do think there's something to it. Uh, that ties back to this administration in particular and the need for some reassurance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, one sort of uh, unrelated but related question, I guess, is uh, in Indonesia, I'd be curious if uh, you noticed anything different about the way India was perceived given, you know, India's sort of um, involvement now in Sabang and Modi's visit um, earlier this summer. Uh, is is India um, being seen more and more as a uh, an active party uh, in the area? I, I think the 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 Indonesians' uh, perception of the Indians has always been uh, one of general favorability, but also kind of regret a little bit that some of the progress and the follow-on and the follow-through isn't isn't really as active as they would like it to be. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think that that sense is still the same. I, I think throughout Southeast Asia, there's a perception that over the past few years, the Modi government has kind of stepped up its game uh, in Southeast Asia, and that's seen as welcome um, because. I think relative to what the United States is doing, um, I attended an event in Indonesia um, where the foreign ministry kind of held a, a session and the Indo-Pacific came up. And there was this uh, direct notion um, by a diplomat of the foreign ministry that, to say, you know, if you want to support ASEAN and Southeast Asia, stop dividing the region. You know, stop talking about things in contrast between the United States and China. Stop making us choose. The Indians are a welcome part of that, as is the Japanese and the Australians, because they kind of counter this notion that it's all about the United States and China. Right, right. right. Um, and so that, I think, continues uh, to be the case. And you wrote about the, the, the Sabang deal and some of the maritime cooperation that's been going on. That's, that's significant. I mean, it's not to be underestimated that you see these other countries in the region linking among themselves because they're really not sure about what the two powers, the United States and China, are doing and and in my view that those linkages ought to be enhanced and encouraged because you know the region should be providing for its own security as well rather than relying on external parties. Absolutely, that's all right. Uh, you know, one one caveat I'd add to India and Southeast Asia is I think we'll have to, um, you know, we've been talking about security and um, and sort of um, geopolitics broadly, but uh, I think the way RCEP shakes out later this year is going to be uh, good to watch. I mean, India, if India does decide to sit out um, the uh, the conclusion of an agreement, which appears likely at this point, um, I think that will sort of, you know, add to perceptions of India maybe not being as committed to acting east as it as it would like to be. Um, yeah, I, I think there is that perception on the economic side. And I think, you know, you you wrote about this with respect to Pompeo and some of the things he he announced on the economic side, right? Yeah. Um, when I was in the region, I mean, the response was along the similar lines of, of what you wrote, which is, you know, uh, this is all welcome, but at the same time, if we look at every single metric in every area of cooperation, we look at what the Chinese are doing, and then we compare it to what the United States uh, and its allies doing, 
we're most encouraged by what the Japanese are doing, really. Um, mm. And the Australians are doing their part. But from the United States, we still have this notion of, I mean, there's some stuff that's being done, but equally important are the unhelpful actions with respect to trade policy and the withdrawal from TPP. Um, and the notion that really, I mean, this American America first notion, um, I think folks are trying to understand, is this something we're going to be with for four years, for eight <laughs> years? Um, you know, what what is the kind of forecast uh, for this? And, you know, U.S.-China tensions on trade as well. Um, it really is a, a kind of gloomy future on the economic side. That's true. Yeah, I think the upcoming midterm elections in the U.S. will be the most watched in a long time in Asia. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, well, Prashant, thanks a lot for joining me. It's good to have you back on the podcast. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. Uh, for listeners, uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you're not already a subscriber. And if you are a subscriber but you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, please do that. We're, I think we need one more review to cross the, uh, cross the 100 review mark on iTunes, so that's an exciting milestone for us. And um, we referenced the newsletter earlier again on the podcast. Uh, I am going to push it again since it is a new product that we're pretty excited about, and it's evolving. Uh, to subscribe, go to diplomat.substack.com. And uh, it's a work in progress. If you have any feedback about things you'd like to see in the newsletter, things you'd like to see less of in the newsletter, uh, feel free to just shoot me an email or reach out to me on Twitter. Very happy to receive that kind of feedback. Uh, And in the meantime, um, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.